I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. state of Doromir was a very small country, but seeing that it was bounded on the south by the sea and on the north and east by mountains, while its centre consisted of a rich plain watered by two rivers, a considerable variety of scenery and vegetation was to be found within its borders. Indeed, towards the west, in striking contrast with the pastoral sobriety of the central plain, the aspect of the country became, if not tropical, at any rate distinctly exotic. Nor was this to be wondered at, perhaps, for beyond the debatable hills, the boundary of Doromir in the west lay Fairyland. There had, however, been no intercourse between the two countries for many centuries. That was the opening paragraph of Lud in the Mist by Hope Merlees, which was originally published in 1926. Lud in the Mist is the capital of the fictional free state of Doromir, a country which shares a border with fairyland just across the debatable hills. Centuries ago, under the rule of Duke Aubrey, fairy things had been a part of life and culture in Doromir. After a violent revolution, a new merchant class took over the country, Duke Aubrey was expelled, and all mention of fairies and fairy lore became taboo. The smuggling of hallucination-inducing fairy fruit into Doromare continues, however, behind closed doors. When Nathaniel Chanticleer, the mayor of Lud in the Mist, finds that his son has ingested some of this heinous fruit, the old ways, the traditions and romance of the fairies can no longer be ignored. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this early classic of fantasy literature, we hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, Rob? Oh, yeah, very good, Sam. Yeah, really, really good to be back and recording again. Yeah, we've had a bit of a break over the summer. How was your summer, by the way, Rob? Does it feel like it's over already, like it is for me? Yeah, yeah, it's starting to feel a bit autumnal here now, and it's, um, yeah, the, the fun of summer is over, back back to work, back to recording, back to everything, so yeah, <laughs> maybe a bit, <laughs> no, obviously this is a, this is a pleasure, but um, yeah, unfortunately, I think um, it's uh, it's back to reality. In, you're not in, not in Mexico anymore, are you? No, certainly not, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm faced with, you know, very directly with the back to school blues so uh, mm. i can't avoid feeling like my summer is over but it's been a it's been a good one and full of tons of reading as well which is cool so today we're talking about lud in the mist by hope Merlees, which was originally published in 1926 very interesting book i think how, how did you feel about reading this one rob yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. Now, I must admit, I think I've told you this already, and it's almost slightly embarrassing. But um, when you first suggested this one, I, I was slightly put off by the, the fantasy element of it. And really, this idea of fairies, I don't know why, I think, you know, some kind of fairy stereotyping that I've got going <laughs> on, um, you know, unfairly. But no, it was, uh, it was really, really I'd enjoyed reading it an awful lot and I think from the from the very first page I realised it was going to be something very different to what I had in my mind 
and yeah obviously we'll we'll talk as the podcast goes on about how we feel the book progressed but certainly it, it kind of grabbed me from the very beginning so yeah yeah hugely enjoyed it oh, fantastic i know for you your relationship with fairies is far more open-minded yeah know, uh, yeah <laughs> um but how did you how did you enjoy it as well yeah well um you know i find fairies quite a seductive prospect so i was more than ready to to enjoy this one but but frankly <laughs> I, I i didn't really know what to expect from this novel because i was already familiar with hope murley's long poem paris which is published in 1920 i think and which is like a really emphatically modernist piece of work it's sort of mm. obscure urban it's fragmented and full of allusions and foreign languages and and really in lots of ways anticipates Eliot's The Wasteland which came you know two years later and so I couldn't quite imagine what a writer who had produced Paris could be doing writing a fantasy story about about fairyland <laughs> it seemed like the most incongruous shift in subject matter to me I have to say it it really does feel like a different writer seems to have almost nothing in common with her earlier work but I, I i did really really enjoy it how many years are there between paris and this six years okay so it's really not a long time is it it's no no something that's quite a big stylistic shift potentially yeah enormous i think it's also it's so much sort of light i mean it's a it's a different form i suppose you can't compare them quite in that way but it's very light mm. It's very sort of humorous. I think it's it's the the closest thing that we might have looked at to a, a sort of comic novel on yeah. the podcast. Did you think of it that way, Rob? Do you think of it as a funny book? Well, yeah. I mean, this is kind of what I was thinking in terms of like as soon as you know opening the first page, I realised it was going to be something very different because I think although it tackles some really interesting and very kind of complex subject matters and there's an awful lot to kind of read into it it is as you say it's it definitely at points very funny and it somehow manages to walk a very fine line between keeping you engaged with the narrative and really kind of engrossing you but not taking itself too seriously which mm. I think was what I was worried about I was worried about something where I really had to buy into the kind of fantasy element of it I think there's a there's a kind of a knowing kind of wink to the reader every so often that you know she really she really knows on the surface quite how ridiculous some of the goings on are mm. but it's not really about that so yeah no I would I would 100% agree yeah there's certainly a sort of ironic distance from the events mm. in the narrator's tone isn't there yeah but I think while it's although it's very funny a lot of the time there's, there's a kind of deep melancholy that that runs mm. through the through the book particularly in terms of the the character the main character I suppose Nathaniel Chanticleer but also in the sense that there's there's this great loss at the heart of the book there's something that's lost to history and a sort of bittersweet memory of a better time which I guess we'll talk about a little bit later in more detail but it's also it's really beautifully written I think yeah completely completely yeah it's quite rich stylistically I think and I never use this word in a positive sense ordinarily yeah, and I'm hesitant to use it actually but it's quirky <laughs> isn't it it's very it's a quirky book yeah and enjoyably so yeah yeah, 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 completely. And, you know, there was elements of it that, especially perhaps slightly more towards the end, that I didn't enjoy quite as much. But, mm. um, yeah, it kind of goes off on, on strange tangents that I certainly wasn't expecting. And, um, yeah, I think quirky is far. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of a, a synonym which um, <laughs> is, is, has less kind of like negative weight to it. But, yeah, I think um, a good quirky is definitely yeah, yeah. a description of it. I mean, I'm just thinking of things like the the characters' names and exclamations that are sort of quaint and mm. and sort of evocative, you know, like by the golden apples of the West, uh, <laughs> they're always exclaiming, uh, or toasted cheese. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's <laughs> one of my favourite. Is it what? There's like busty busty barrel or something. I can't remember. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> Don't remember but that one. yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, I mean, this is kind of. It feels like she takes it to the right level of absurdity so that you can you're obviously not meant to take these entirely seriously and you're kind of laughing at some of the characters whilst also kind of sharing in this yeah i think as exactly as you say this this kind of melancholy that runs through 
the book. So yeah, for me, that's that's what that's what sets it apart. I think from mm. something that might be a little more po-faced. It's um, it's I think she she sets the tone perfectly for the kind of level of ridiculousness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The last thing I wanted to say about just like general impressions, I have to say I enjoyed the book far more from a sort of world building and atmos- atmosphere perspective than I did uh, in terms of plot. You had similar feelings about it, no? That it, in some ways the the plot becomes overly conventional, that it's clothed in the garb of something very, very different and, and unique. But I, I wasn't so fond of the kind of mystery element of the of the book. Mm. I, I didn't find it quite as, as gripping as I think it was intended to be. Yeah, completely. I feel, yeah, the, it's almost like you can kind of split the book at a very particular point and the, the first section is yeah very much about this kind of world building and creating a, a kind of society that you can you can believe in and understand and I think that's done incredibly well and also laying the groundwork for a lot of the kind of allegorical references and at this point things are kept very open and quite mysterious and you're I think at that point the the mystery element of it and the attempt to work out what's going on is for me really interesting because of what those things might represent Mm. but then towards the end of the book or you know at a certain point it feels like she feels like she has to follow through with the elements of the plot that she's laid down Mm. and things become far more concrete and tied down and at that point it becomes harder I think to read it in a kind of interpretive way to find what kind of possible analogues or I don't know to kind of work out what might be below the text yeah and it actually just becomes at a certain point like a straight adventure <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah yeah and it and it starts to becomes a bit more of its time this kind of like ripping yarn of going you know riding through the countryside on horseback and, yeah yeah i mean it's still enjoyable oh definitely. yeah 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 and um and there's certain bits of bits of it especially towards the very end that i really enjoyed but i would i would definitely agree the the tone and texture and the possibilities for interpretation that the world she creates offers are, are perhaps overall more interesting than the plot itself. Yeah, I think that's that's well put. Man. can tell us something about her life Rob. yeah 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 absolutely yeah so she's um she's born in kent in the uk and her father's a, a kind of wealthy sugar merchant whose business takes place in britain south africa and so she grows up in scotland but then also for extended periods in south africa where i read and i wasn't able to back this up i don't know if you read this too sam but apparently whilst in south africa she she learned to speak zulu i i didn't read that actually i know she was talented when it, when it comes to languages yeah with russian and greek and so on but uh no i didn't hear about zulu so apparently an early childhood aptitude for languages, as I say, I not confirmed, but that's certainly what some of the biographies say. So yeah, she's educated under a governess and then uh, goes to school in, in St Andrews. And in 1907, she's presented at court, a debutante, which kind of gives an idea of the kind of aristocratic lineage that she's growing up at. And then briefly attends the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and ends up going to Newnham College in Cambridge to study Greek, demonstrated a great skill with languages, apparently learns or or kind of has a grasp of French, Latin, Greek, and then goes on in later life to learn Spanish, Arabic, Persian and Icelandic, apparently, which is quite the list. Um, But so then at Cambridge, a kind of really formative experiences that she develops a close relationship with the classicist uh, Jane Harrison who starts off as her tutor and then becomes a friend and collaborator and it's kind of I think it seems the jury's out very much on on her sexuality and the nature exactly of this relationship I read it described as erotic but not sexual Mm. Uh, and I don't know if that's her own words I think it might be from from a biography rather than her own words but they're certainly incredibly close uh personal and working relationship there and they kind of like travel widely together and they live together from 1913 until 
1928 when Harrison dies. So they're they're like they're life partners, I suppose. At yeah. that point, yeah, 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 absolutely. And they travel a lot together throughout Europe and into Russia. Melis learns Russian. She has a she has a diploma, in fact in Russian and translates various texts from Russians, including lots of folk stories, which I think is, again, really, really interesting in the in the context of this work. It's something I'd like to know a lot more about, actually, to think about the, the folk elements of this particular book. There's lots of stuff that stands out immediately from English folk tales. But yeah, the, the not knowing enough about Russian folk stories, I wasn't able to pin straight away the, the influences that might have appeared in this book from Russian. So uh, yeah, after Harrison's death, Merleys converts to Catholicism. And um, I was trying to find out a bit of information about what her kind of religious upbringing was in the family. I couldn't find very much. So I'm going to assume that it might have been some kind of Anglican kind of growing up in uh, Scotland and mm. in Kent, that it's going to be something like that. But then you were saying earlier before we started recording that this is like a, a really, really big shift for her. And that she really embraces Catholicism in a very big way I guess as she you know seemed kind of very much this this shift is produced by the the death of her kind of life partner yeah I think so I think what I read in the introduction to the collected poems that yeah, her diaries suddenly become full of discussions about God and and sins and suddenly becomes subsumed by religion I think it was a really big shift for her and it's worth noting actually I left out something very important here that um, it's actually two years before Harrison dies that Lud in the Mist is published so there's definitely you know very spiritual element of this book and the kind of turn to spirituality is um it's like a really huge theme, but we can't necessarily link that to this turn to Catholicism. So I guess it's interesting to think in terms of the idea of spirituality in this book and how that then translates into her relationship with Catholicism. After Harrison's death, Merlis goes to, to live with her mother. And it's probably worth saying in terms of that relationship with Harrison that apparently a big part of the reason that she stayed in Cambridge and was able to then kind of have this literary career is because she turned down a marriage proposal. And so this is also kind of the reason that she then ends up living with her mother as an older woman at the time. But she becomes friends with T.S. Eliot, who stays with her and her mother during the Second World War, where he writes the third and fourth sections of Four Quartets. And then in 1948, Merlis moves to South Africa, where she stays for the best part of 20 years. Mm. I don't have a huge amount of information about her life there and and kind of like her writing. So I guess sort of focusing on the time around writing and then publishing this book. Mm. Uh, but I can tell you that she returned to the UK and she, she dies in 1978, aged 91. But in terms of the book that we're looking at, it's really interesting, I think, that it's republished in 1970s in a kind of like paperback format off the back of kind of like resurgent in interest in science fiction and fantasy but it's a kind of unauthorized publication because according to the editor Lynn Carter they you know they they had no idea if Merlis was alive like mm. who she was really or where she, where she lived and she's still at this point very much alive you know she's in her 80s right but perhaps it's uh, you know I've read it suggested that Carter might not have been looking that hard right, right. So it probably wasn't too difficult to find out you know it's not quite as easy as today but I think you can probably find out if someone's still alive especially someone who is you know relatively well known published in her lifetime you know this isn't someone you know really obscure you know it's kind of like member of effectively the aristocracy but then you know since that point in 1970s it's become something of a of a cult classic mm -hmm. it's kind of where we where we find it today yeah it's worth mentioning maybe quite how involved she was in modernist literary circles as well she's close with virginia wolf and and leonard wolf and lytton strachey and roger fry and so on at a certain point very very deeply involved in sort of literary community and so I suppose when mm. she moves away after Jane Harrison's death and becomes kind of less closely associated with, with lots of prominent writers, it, it might have felt a little bit like she had disappeared off the face of the earth somewhat. I know that uh, in terms of the kind of work she was producing, 
as much as there is a shift between, say, Paris and uh, Lud in the Mist, it becomes even more pronounced in, in later life, so that mm. uh, her, her late poetry is very much sort of formal verse and and regarded by some as as far less successful so it does seem like there are very separate periods of her life in in some sense and i suppose this book spans the seemingly what what is the the shift in that her unfinished work that she spent an awful long time in south africa working on was a a large two-volume biography of an elizabethan antiquarian which sort of feels somehow like it might fit in Oh yeah, some of the characters in Blood in the Mist, but is is a world away from her her life with Virginia Woolf and um, this kind of like modernist scene that she's very much a part of that group and in something like Paris is able to produce work that you know they admire and I think Virginia Woolf prints Paris is that right or is yeah. some of the poetry yeah she does it with uh, Leonard Woolf I think yeah they mm. print together so they you know they obviously admire her work and then um, there's a very large kind of stylistic shift. It'd be very interesting to know what that particular group made of Lud in the Mist. I thought it might be interesting to think about fairies a little bit. Can I ask you first, Rob, why you why do you have that reaction or why did you have that reaction? to the idea of a book about fairies what was so sort of unappealing about that i think it was yeah it was definitely because i imagined the text yeah maybe taking itself quite seriously in that in that respect when i was you know younger and lots of people i knew were reading lord of the rings things like this it was i've never been a huge fan of fantasy literature and i guess i had in my head that it was going to be a far more kind of like straight up piece of fantasy writing mm. which it, I just don't think it, it is and actually the fairies remain in the background at all times you know there's no there are no fairies in the book other than in the imagination of the people of Lud. really you know it can be argued that perhaps later in the book that isn't the case but yeah so I suppose something like that that's was kind of my that was my worry <laughs> yeah 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 and it's and it's not and it's not really the case I think it's quite sort of subtle in the way it operates i suppose uh yeah you're right the the sort of fairy aspect is very much on the on the periphery of the novel and it's just mysterious enough for it to be very seductive i think i was interested in the way the ways in which the idea of this kind of fantasy and the the world of fairy might sort of intersect with with modernism because you know fairies are no no strangers to English literature at all, are they? I mean, you, mm. you only have to look at A Midsummer Night's Dream or The Tempest or uh, Keats's La Belle Dame, Saint Merci, The Fairy Queen. All, you know, really prominent works of English literature have incorporated that kind of folklore for a really long time. And I've always really enjoyed that. And I think for me, it's probably because of the way in which in a lot of texts they seem to occupy this space directly on the border between enchantment and and fear there's a kind of fearful beauty in them that re- really appeals to me you know, in the 19th century before this book they're again a really key part of the english imagination in um, in pre-raphaelite paintings and then in the late 19th century they're given darker shades in in the work of arthur macken in his 1890s stories and I'm, I'm sure what i'm about to say is a sort of gross oversimplification but i think and i don't know if you have this impression as well but i feel like in the early 20th century fairies seem to become you know perhaps perhaps with a few notable exceptions like this book and uh, the work of lord dunsany they're mostly the stuff of children's books mm. you know that's what strikes me anyway i mean very broadly um, i'm thinking of things like jm barry and rudyard kipling even arthur rackham's illustrations and so on i mean i'd love i'd love to be corrected on that i'd love to hear from anyone listening if they know of fiction from this from this period involving fairies you know it's written for adults i'd be really interested to hear about it but is that the kind of is that your impression as well rob that it becomes sort of yeah children's literature material yeah 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 definitely 
I think there's probably lots of reasons. I think there's obviously like a, something happens where there's a certain like sanitation of folk tales, and you know, there's probably like several PhDs to be written on exactly why that happens. Mm. But um, yeah, that shift of folk and fairy tales away from something which can be yeah incredibly dark, you know, has as is the case in this book, like an awful lot to say about kind of like the psychology and the kind of the unconscious yeah these kind of like drives and and fears people have and a lot of that is is stripped away and it yeah these stories actually just become face value stories that are meant to you know some element of escapism perhaps or something and and that's when they become acceptable or palatable for Mm. for children and I don't know if that's a process that takes place in Victorian times perhaps or when like a an idea of what's acceptable for for young minds even if you're thinking about the ways in which Grimm's fairy tales become what's the word boulderized yeah <laughs> if, if you can put it like that so any of the, the darker content is kind of excised from that from them which is quite a shock when you I mean when you've grown up with those kinds of endings to, mm. the, to the stories or, or even just little details and you go back to sort of a more authoritative edition it's quite it's quite shocking you know I, mm. I, I uh, when I was trying to learn German I was reading um reading the Grimm fairy stories in in the original and I remember getting to the end of I think it's Snow White and the antagonist of that story is made to dance in a pair of iron shoes that have been heated on a forge until she collapses dead you know that's like pretty horrific kind of (laughs) kind of image no I think you're right there probably is a major shift in the late late 19th century but like i was saying about macken you know he he also tries to restore that the kind of darker folkloric shades of uh, of the the little people you know the fairy mm. folk and so on so both things are, are kind of parallel but yeah I, su- I suppose in the mainstream becomes the material for children's literature but i was interested in you know like i said the points of intersection between modernist practice and and what murley's is doing with fairy lore and one interesting thing it seems to me is that a lot of these great modernist works proceed from a similar place in that they they engage very deeply with myth and folklore now obvious things would be ulysses and the wasteland that have that in common but but even a book we've looked at on this podcast the mary butts novel armed with madness is also doing Mm. something really similar I came across this great article whose title I really love. The article is called Make It Old, you know, obviously echoing (laughs) Ezra Pound's dictum. Uh, Yeah, Make It Old, The Other Mythic Method by Brian Atterbury in a book called The Mirror of the Past. And he begins this article with an excerpt from T.S. Eliot's review of uh, Ulysses. And in that review, Eliot sees this engagement with myth and folklore as a sort of new way of organising texts and or even proceeding as an artist. And he says, In using the myth, in manipulating a continuous parallel between contemporaneity and antiquity, Mr. Joyce is pursuing a method which others must pursue after him. There will not be imitators any more than the scientist who, pers- who uses the discoveries of an Einstein in pursuing his own independent further investigations. It's simply a way of controlling, of ordering, of giving a shape and a significance to the immense panorama of futility and anarchy which is contemporary history. It is a method already adumbrated by Mr. Yates and of the need for which I believe Mr. Yates to have been the first contemporary to be conscious. It is a method for which the horoscope is auspicious. Psychology, such as it is, and whether our reaction to it be comic or serious, ethnology and the golden bough have concurred to make possible what was impossible even a few years ago. Instead of narrative method, we may now use the mythical method. It is, I seriously believe, a step towards making the modern world possible for art. That quite grand statement there, I think, is really interesting for what we can see in Lud in the Mist. You know, there's a real conviction there, in Eliot at least, that the mythic is a kind of channel through to the modern, a way of experiencing modern reality more intensely precisely because of that intermediary of the of the mythic you know and as we said Merleys is very close to Eliot she's involved in those modernist circles but also her partner 
Jane Harrison is a is a folklore, you know, classicist and a scholar of folklore and mm. mythology, and she writes about Fraser and the the Golden Bough and so on. And I think that this the the way in which allegory functions in this in 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 this book is really curious in terms of a window through to the modern and through this folkloric lens i mean maybe we can talk about that a little bit later but the writer of that article brian atterbury certainly thinks so he says that murley's found a way to suggest modern alienation and ancient ritual without depicting either directly instead she constructed a halfway point the imaginary land of Doromere, and then gradually revealed the connections forward and backward. Did you get a sense that this was part of her mode of proceeding, Rob, to, that she's trying to write about her contemporary reality through the lens of folklore and fairy lore and so on? Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think the, the kind of allegorical element of that is obviously clearly so important and what, for me, because that was so instantly obvious, really shaped my, my reading of the work and made it like instantly very palatable mm-hmm. from, from what I was expecting in terms of the political understanding of history. There's like a very conventional story being told here about the formation of the of the modern world what what the kind of like drawbacks are there's some kind of class politics if you will that i'm sure we'll talk about later that are maybe slightly more problematic but yeah it's certainly for all it's taking place in the fairy world unlike kind of fairy tales that we understand whether they're the kind of originals or the or the sanitized version this definitely isn't taking place in a feudal society like from the from the beginning we're told that there's a revolution and there's yeah like a mercantile class which is now in charge and so although the the way we understand this society you know that actually people seem to work the land and the there's farms and um, the mode of transport is by horse. Actually, the power structure within the society is is very modern. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that element certainly combined with the allegorical unconscious element of myth and, and folklore, which is so strong in the people and the way that this kind of bubbles to the surface in in language and through popular sayings and the kind of production of art that they have in in society is all, all definitely i think to a certain degree speaks of relationship with myth definitely i'm not 100% sure whether i feel it's it's completely successful always mm. because i think at, at points the imaginary of this world is almost so convincing that it perhaps obscures the relationship with modernity mm. a bit mm. but that might be my disposition towards um, oh. <laughs> towards fairy tales or fantasy i don't know but do you, you think that do you think that has to do with the sort of fairy elements or do you think that's more about the kind of world building that's involved in the, the description of Doromere or Lud as a town. You know, because I, I don't know what it reminded you of, Rob, but there is a very distinct kind of Elizabethan flavour to it, I think. Mm, Even yeah. in terms of the titles of books that are mentioned, which have these really long convoluted titles yeah yeah the the modes of transport and so on it seemed to me like a twee quaint kind of place in one Mm, sense sort of rustic the townsfolk all seem to have some special recipe of their own for homemade gin or a special kind of jam or something like that yeah yeah. it it feels (laughs) like almost a sort of satirical picture of a picturesque English village, yeah, on the one hand, but then with this very uh, historical flavour, like with very, very sort of mm. El- Elizabethan sort of character. Could that be one of the things that obscures rather than... Yeah, no, it's... The fairy? Uh, I, I think you're right, in fact. Yeah, for, for me personally, there was like huge amounts to take away from this and it was, it was really, really interesting. But the modern world and kind of like modernism as a style, it wasn't something I felt was hugely present here. Although I think, yeah, what you were saying about the, the kind of like the mythic style or the mythic kind of like mode is is really interesting and i hadn't i hadn't thought too much about it like i said before stylistically this is not a modernist text by any stretch of the imagination but i do think it's interesting that it proceeds from the same from the mm. same starting point in some sense 
Yeah. And as we said before, you know, at the very beginning, um, it can't, I guess it can't be ignored that this follows six years on from, from like a very, very modernist text by the same author. And so you feel there almost must be, there must be something, even if it's just in the kind of considerations that kind of form in the production of the work. And even to some extent, the conclusions that are drawn at the end of the novel are, are similar I mean, they're, they're close enough, they're related to the conclusions of something like The Wasteland, I think. You know, mm. It has that same sort of quality of a, of a lament that The Wasteland has, I think. I'll ask you to listen to the tune before you begin to dance it, he went on. Now then, Pertunis. Why, it's just Columbine over again, began Prunella scornfully. But the words froze on her lips and she stood spellbound and frightened. It was Columbine, but with a difference. For since they had last heard it, the tune might have died and wandered in strange places to come back to earth an angry ghost. Now then, dance, cried Professor Wisp in harsh, peremptory tones. And it was in sheer self-defence that they obeyed. As if by dancing, they somehow or other escaped from that tune which seemed to be themselves. Within and out, in and out, round as a ball, with hither and thither as straight as a line, with lily, germander and sops in wine, with sweet briar and bonfire and strawberry wire and columbine, sang Professor Wisp, and in and out, in and out of a labyrinth of dreams wound the crabapple blossoms. But now the tune had changed its key, It was getting gay once more, gay but strange and very terrifying. Any lass for a duke, a duke who wears green, in lands where the sun and the moon do not shine, with lily, germander and sops and wine, with sweet briar and bonfire and strawberry wire and columbine, sang Professor Wisp, and in and out he wound between his pupils, or rather not wound but dived, darted, flashed, while every moment his singing grew shriller, his laughter more wild. And then, whence and how they could not say, a new person had joined the dance. He was dressed in green and he wore a black mask. And the curious thing was that, in spite of all the crossings and recrossings and runs down the middle and the endless shuffling in the positions of the dancers demanded by the intricate figures of the dance, The newcomer was never beside you. It was always with somebody else that he was dancing. You never felt the touch of his hand. This was the experience of each individual crabapple blossom. But Moonlove Honeysuckle caught a glimpse of his back, and on it there was a hump. What what do you think of the ways in which the fairy folk are depicted in, in the book? Yeah, I found it like absolutely fascinating that both explicitly and kind of implicitly they're kind of stand in for this like representation of I guess some kind of folk knowledge, a kind of almost kind of like epigenetic understanding at times that there's something, you know, repressed. The huge theme of, of kind of death when it you know, it says that there's for the country people, as they get referred to, that there's there's no distinction between fairies and the dead, and that they're both referred to as the kind of silent people. Mm-hmm. And what that means is a kind of from a kind of like unconscious or psychoanalytic point of view. You know, what's what's actually going on with the main character? This. So yeah, no, I think I think she uses that incredibly well, especially at the beginning of the book, because it's never it's never truly pinned down quite what this this thing is and reading it as a as a contemporary reader the idea of having this kind of like great unknown threat of another country on your border which you attempt to kind of like erase and to even speak of it is uh, offensive is is something really really pertinent that obviously Merley's you know there there were undoubtedly extreme levels of, of nationalism and racism at the time mm. but I think it also means something very different now and and for that reason alone and there's many others but for that reason alone it's um it's a really interesting thing to to read at the moment it's uh, across the the debatable hills which is one of my favorite yeah yeah the, uh, <laughs> it's a phrase like across the debatable hills there's this um this other land 
that may or may not be completely different from, from the world that we understand it. So, yeah, no, I mean, the, I keep saying it, but from from the outset, I realised that this certainly wasn't a fairy story in the way that I guess I imagined it being, as we've said, the kind of like sanitised version of the, of the fairies. What I really enjoyed about the depiction of them was, I suppose, this, this element of, a, of something... Dionysiac in temperament the way that they mm. they come to re- represent a kind of freedom that is not open to the rest of the citizens of, of Doromir you know even just the seductive nature of their speech which we hear mostly in terms of rhymes or, or folk songs the emphasis on the color green in their dress and a tendency to towards the sort of the poetic and the musical coupled with the idea of a taboo represents them in that in that way that I find particularly seductive this beauty and something beautiful something sinister but I think that the, the way that that is used in terms of allegory is really complex it never it never felt to me like it represented one thing entirely and whenever I found myself leaning towards a particular interpretation of them I was always tripped up later on you touched on it a little bit earlier but when I started reading the book it seemed very strongly very strongly suggested that the idea of this former kingdom under the rule of Duke Aubrey where the fairy folk seemed to roam free as I understood it had a very sort of direct parallel with the rise of the middle class or a merchant class and the, the decline of the nobility in some sense and, and given Hope Merleys's background um, I found that quite uncomfortably conservative mm. to begin with i think i was saying to you before that this idea that it could be a kind of lament for arist- for an aristocratic england and the idea that a redistribution of power necessarily means this dilution of sensibility came through really strongly for me you know if you even just look at the way that that it's described in one of the opening chapters the grim merchants obsessed by a will to wealth raised up the people against him, against Duke Aubrey. For three days a bloody battle raged in the streets of Lud in the Mist, in which fell all the nobles of Doromir. As for Duke Aubrey, he vanished, some said to Fairyland, where he was living to this day. During those three days of bloodshed, all the priests had vanished also, so Doromir lost simultaneously its duke and its cult. In the days of the dukes, fairy things had been looked on with reverence, and the most solemn event of the religious year had been the annual arrival from fairyland of mysterious hooded strangers with milk-white mares, laden with offerings of fairy fruit for the duke and the high priest. But after the revolution, when the merchants had seized all the legislative and administrative power, a taboo was placed on all things fairy. Reading that, I felt very, very sort of oppressed by that interpretation to begin with. I think as the book progresses, it it becomes less and less credible to read it straightforwardly as something to do with class. Well, what did you think, Rob? Did you have a similar experience to me? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree. Although I think the um, the kind of kernel for the more interesting and more expanded reading of that, which becomes far more obvious as the book goes on, is almost in the section immediately after the bit that you've just read. Mm. When it talks about the, um, yeah, the degeneracy of society, which sprung from the ever-present sense of mortality, as it says, and that this is this is kind of like hidden or or somehow papered over in this new, you know, kind of like middle-class way of life. And it says that there was certainly nothing morbid about the men of the revolution, so the the kind of new middle-class rulers, and under their regime, what what one can only call the tragic sense of life vanished from poetry and art. And so I think, yeah, there's a there's a far more expanse, something that goes beyond class to something about contemporary society and what's lost in terms of a, a sense of tragedy, I suppose, that there's a, a certain amount of thing, you know, that it gets subsumed into the kind of like everyday practicalities of life. And that perhaps actually what it's suggesting is not simply that the tragic sense of life vanishes from poetry and art, that perhaps poetry and art themselves vanish because the tragic is is no longer there and yeah this i've spoken about it in terms of other books that we've read and discussed on the podcast and it's something that i just find endlessly fascinating but this kind of cultural and societal relationships with death and it is a big part of this here so for me that you know my ears really pricked up when this kind of history of of dorimer 
comes across and it's and it's so tied in with how society understands death yeah that's that's just one part of what gets lost in seemingly the change to a like more contemporary structure of society even if outwardly it doesn't look very contemporary i mean you just reminded me of what i thought was one of the most beautiful parts of the book which is when nathaniel goes out for a walk in the graveyard Mm. or among the among the tombs in the in the presence of the silent people he's a member of this class who does feel the the sort of call of the of the tragic and it's figured really interestingly in uh, in a moment towards the beginning of the book where at one of the parties at their at their parties they would habitually go up into the attic and find the old old dress of the former nobles of of this society and they find an old lute and when the strings are plucked that note that sounds at that moment evokes something very very deep or provokes something very very deep in uh, Nathaniel's consciousness do you think that the sense of the tragic is what's being discussed there at that moment yeah uh, yeah 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 completely it almost reminded me of um a kind of like weirdly pastoral english version of um, like a priestian madeline or something. yeah among the chanticleer's lumber there was also no lack of those delicate sophisticated toys fans porcelain cups engraved seals that when the civilization that played with them is dead become pathetic and appealing just as tunes once gay inevitably become plaintive when the generation that first sang them has turned to dust for those particular toys one felt could never have been really frivolous there was a curious gravity about their coloring and lines besides The moral of the ephemeral things with which they were decorated was often pointed in an aphorism or riddle. For instance, on a fan painted with windflowers and violets were illuminated these words, Why is melancholy like honey? Because it is very sweet and it is culled from flowers. These trifles clearly belong to a later period than the masks and costumes. Nevertheless, they too seemed very remote from the daily life of the modern Doromerites. Well, when they had whitened their faces with flour and decked themselves out to look as fantastic as possible, Master Nathaniel seized one of the old instruments, a sort of lute ending in the carving of a cock's head, its strings rotted by damp and antiquity, and crying out, Let's see if this old fellow has a crook left in him, plucked roughly at its strings. They gave out one note so plangent, blood-freezing and alluring that for a second the company stood as if petrified. Then one of the girls saved the situation with a humorous squawk and putting her hands to her ears cried, Thank you, Nat, for your cat's concert. It was worse than a squeaking slate. And one of the young men cried laughingly, It must be the ghost of one of your ancestors who wants to be let out and given a glass of his own claret. And the incident faded from their memories, but not from the memory of Master Nathaniel. He was never again the same man. For years, that note was the apex of his nightly dreams, the point towards which, by their circuitous and seemingly senseless windings, they had all the time been converging. It was as if the note were a living substance, and subject to the law of chemical changes, that is to say, as that law works in dreams. For instance, he might dream that his old nurse was baking an apple on the fire in her own cosy room, and as he watched it simmer and sizzle, she would look at him with a strange smile, a smile such as he had never seen on her face in his waking hours, and say, but of course, you know, it isn't really the apple, it's the note. But there is just this sense of a deeper mode of life that was present before this age of, well, merchants and lawyers, I suppose, you know, that um, Hmm. within that description of the revolution that I read earlier, there's a a discussion of the destruction of a 
or the loss of cult in mm. the society and and I, I suppose we're just we're talking about the the present of Lud as we're reading about it as a an, an irreligious age or an age without reverie or devotion which forms a kind of more lackluster existence for everyone and I was wondering about the possibility that fairy lore in the novel represents religion or or spirituality more straightforwardly and i think it's interesting to think about it in parallel with what has almost taken its place which is the law the law is described in a really fascinating way in the book at, at one point it's described as having the terrifying solidity of reality itself which is a, a description i particularly enjoyed this idea that it has a sort of transformative power of reality to to mould reality after its own fancy and simultaneously there's no mention of the church in the novel at all in the novel's present tense the only thing that might have a, an equivalent power over reality is is religion to my mind in terms of maybe religion or art or something like that mm. do, do you think there's a, a sort of alleg- allegory of the simply the decline of faith here rob faith in in its at its most fundamental level i suppose rather than just simple religious faith yeah 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 100 percent. and i think obviously that the discussion around the law is the point when the the book becomes kind of most philosophical at points when um there's a kind of like extended monologue from nathaniel speaking to his friend ambrose and yeah he talks at length about about the law yeah, there's a, a kind of refashioning of classic philosophical arguments around natural law and, and kind of like man-made law. And definitely the law as opposed to something like spirituality. And I mean, in terms of the Catholicism that she's later to find, it feels like this, the spirituality that exists in this book is not an institutional spirituality. It seems to, the the points where it still exists in Dorimer is in the kind of, this kind of like folk knowledge of the older generation of, of the kind of like working people. Yeah, there's a, there's a nice description from, I think it's uh, Nathaniel's nurse who kind of stays with the family and nurses his own children. She says, you know, in a kind of slightly hackneyed way, but she says, uh, you know, there's no clock like the sun and no calendar like the stars. And why? Because it gets one used to the look of time. And there's no bogey from over the hills that scares one like time. But when one's been used all one's life to seeing him naked, as it were, instead of shut up in a clock like he is in Lud, one learns that he's quiet and peaceful as an old ox dragging the plough. And yeah, it's this kind of, um, I feel like a, a kind of spiritual engagement with time and with generation and with, um, yeah, a non institutional understanding of these things that is maybe lost so certainly and i guess yeah it completely reflects certain ideas of of spirituality that are happening at the time it was really worthwhile pointing that out rob as well the fact that it's not an institutional kind of religion or one fixed idea of spirituality and i think one of the sort of sticking points or problematic parts of seeing it as an allegory for the decline of faith is the kind of faith that the fairy folk would represent if if that were the case which is one of Mm. excess uh, Dionysian bacchanalian revelry no the fairy fruit is regarded as a kind of the the most taboo indulgence possible that Mm. is sort of decadent in the in the worst sense of that of that word and then even um even other things in in the book seem to suggest that what's being lamented is not yeah again not a christian kind of faith but something distinctly pagan or at least primeval you know the name of the town lud calls to mind this king of britain in pre-roman times according to geoffrey of monmouth and then um atterbury the writer of that article i mentioned earlier also points to these figures of the herms or the, the the spirits of the farms in in the book these statues which echo figures in in greek fertility rituals in which the the phallus mm. is like a symbol of fertility this is not you know 
whether Catholic or, or Anglican, this is not Christianity, clearly, at least not in any direct sense. So in that sense, its conclusions are perhaps slightly different to the wasteland, as I m- mentioned earlier. But it feels like perhaps what may be being said here is that actually the Dionysian aspect of it is something that is created in making it taboo, mm. that perhaps actually mm. it's... It's not this at all. You know, in a in a maybe more traditional fairy story, we would see after the kind of like reintroduction of the world of fairy into the world of Dorimer that um, everyone lives happily ever after. But what we in fact find is that Nathaniel is still uneasy and, and troubled by a kind of melancholy of, of still something being lost, still something being not quite integrated into his life and that perhaps the kind of melancholy is this complete inability to bring the tragic into his life or to to kind of like come to terms with it in the way that perhaps is implied in the the life of the country folk um Mm. you know their their life is already i guess shaped by a certain excess they're kind of like grand dinners eat an entire cheese and (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's these these kind of quite strange trappings of um these like uh upper upper middle class like nouveau riche excess you know these are already things that perhaps exist slightly and so for me anyway i thought that perhaps that was something that had been created by these you know this this idea that the fairy things represented a kind of uncomfortable excess was perhaps something that has been created by the middle class themselves mm. the one one glimpse we have potentially of fairyland is a fair you know like a, a country fair without any noise yeah that's so a, so a weird, beautiful that moment yeah, i think absolutely and so it's this weird thing of the i think the you know the, the fair in in europe is seen as the ideal of of a kind of like pagan moment of excess which has to exist in society mm. that society has to incorporate this bacchanalian moment but yet here it appears in in total silence it's a, as you say like really really beautiful way of perhaps suggesting that those two things are never going to sit perfectly together Master Nathaniel, for how long he could not have said, went riding up and up the bridle path that wound in and out among the foothills, which gradually grew higher and higher. Not a living creature did he meet with, not a goat, not so much as a bird. He began to feel curiously drowsy, as if he were riding in a dream. Suddenly, his consciousness seemed to have gone out of gear, to have missed one of the notches in time or space, for he found himself riding along a high road in the midst of a crowd of peasants in holiday attire. Nor did this surprise him. His passive, uncritical mood was impervious to surprise. And yet, what were these people with whom he had mingled? An ordinary troop of holiday-making peasants? At first sight, so they seemed. There were pretty girls with sunny hair escaping from under red and blue handkerchiefs, and rustic dandies cross-gartered with gay ribbons, and old women with quiet, nobly-lined faces, a village community bound for some fair or merrymaking. But why were their eyes so fixed and strange, and why did they walk in absolute silence? And then the invisible Cicerone of dreams, who is one's other self, whispered in his ear, these are they whom men call dead. And like everything said by that Cicerone, these words seemed to throw a flood of light on the situation, to make it immediately normal, even prosaic. Then the road took a sudden turn, and before them stretched a sort of heath, dotted with the white booths of a fair. That is the market of souls, whispered the invisible Cicerone. Of course, of course, muttered Master Nathaniel, as if all his life he had known of its existence. And indeed he had forgotten all about Ranulf, and thought that to visit this fair had been the one object of his journey. They crossed the heath, and then they paid their gate money to a silent old man. And though Master Nathaniel paid with a coin of a metal and design he had never seen before, it was with no sense of a link missing in the chain of cause and effect that he produced it from his pocket. 
Outwardly, there was nothing different in this fair from those in Doromir. Pewterers, shoemakers, silversmiths were displaying their wares. There were cows and sheep and pigs and refreshment booths and rarey shows. But instead of the cheerful, variegated din that is part of the fun of the everyday fair, over this one there reigned complete silence, for the beasts were as silent as the people. Dead silence and blazing sun. You know, you said that Nathaniel is still missing something. There's still this bittersweet melancholy in him. I think you can expand the idea of it being specifically religious to to something, I don't know, even psychological or spiritual and psychological. You know, the epigraph of the novel from from Jane Mm. Harrison, Merlis' mentor and life partner, suggests something, I think. It reads, The sirens stand, as it would seem, to the ancient and the modern, for the impulses in life as yet immortalized imperious longings, ecstasies, whether for love or art or philosophy, magical voices called to a man from his land of heart's desire, and to which if he hearken, it may be that he will return no more, voices too which, whether a man sail by or stay to hearken, still sing on. There's this sense throughout that giving in to this thing that is oppressed on a societal level or on the individual level is always a very, very dangerous one. Uh, To acquiesce to desire can mean collapse or it can mean Mm. greater understanding. And that becomes sort of embodied in the fairy fruit in the novel, doesn't it? This idea that if you eat some of this fruit, you might turn insane. You know, you might uh, (laughs) just start to hallucinate and to mutter these strange phrases and lose all sense of reality. But it becomes clear later on that that in itself is a is a kind of illusion or is that how you understood it rob that that the fairy fruit is not actually particularly dangerous in itself it's simply that society's suppression of it society's uh, unwillingness to to give in to desire in some sense to acknowledge that primeval poetic artistic part of the self is what makes the the fairy fruit dangerous by the end there are parties with with everyone eating it right Mm. and that kind of acceptance of it as a part of life is what divests it of its frightening power yeah and i think but for me maybe this is partly where the ending falls down a little is that i would definitely definitely agree with that but i feel that actually in terms of this thing which is lost and the the kind of lament for society under the dukes that perhaps actually society would change quite considerably if the fairy fruit was reintroduced and so whilst the introduction makes you know the the return of the fairy fruit makes sense as you know the the way the novel progresses the fact that the structure of society remains seemingly relatively unchanged afterwards Mm. with this one addition is maybe hard to understand Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me anyway, it was it was that yeah the fairy fruit isn't dangerous. It's you know that it, it poses a danger to society perhaps and the way of living and the way of thinking that upholds that society. But certainly, it's not the kind of thing that will drive people into insane reveries and will be like incredibly dangerous, dangerous to the individuals. Just one last thing about fairy fruit, I suppose. Mm. Did you ever think of it as as drugs? simply i mean that was definitely something that crossed my mind at the beginning and then i found it hard to fit in with what was going on here oh no i only bring it up because it really obviously feels like a drug in the way that it's talked about you know it's smuggled into into lud it's something that is you ingest and makes you see the world in you know from a, a skewed angle or a different way it induces hallucinations and so on i thought of it as well because in this uh, this really helpful article the writer mentions the cocaine craze of the mm. 1920s and quite a number of other things actually he says that the stories images events and characters all have analogues in the real historical world the symbol of fairy fruit for instance manages to convey 
not only poetic inspiration and romantic longing, but also youthful rebellion, sexual license, and the cocaine craze of the 1920s. The trial of Endymion Lear suggests any number of tabloid fodder murder cases. Unrest among the working classes of Lud in the Mist brings echoes of Bolshevism and anarchy. So there are these historical analogues that are more on the sort of surface than those about which we've mm. been talking for, for most of the time. It's very difficult to trace the decline of faith as it occurs in, in real time or people becoming less spiritual or more mercantile or not acknowledging the necessity of art, poetry, romance and so on. Those are quite nebulous subjects. And I wonder if many people reading this novel at the time may have turned to those ideas sooner than they they would have to the kinds of things that we're talking about yeah i wonder i think thing for me is that there seems to be elements of like fairy fruit obviously plays a huge role but there's also you know it talks about fairy things and then also the fact that even to speak about fairies the way that it's you know kind of worked its way into popular language there's elements which are acceptable because they've Perhaps their origins have been forgotten, but to speak about it directly is just absolutely forbidden. Yeah. And so for me, yeah, it was really less about, yeah, less about like a a thing that could be ingested that would change you and more about a kind of like mode of thinking or being or somehow something that was kind of broader and included language and practice and all sorts of things. It's hard because obviously the, the, the fruit and the eating of the fruit is such a particular thing, even up to the present day, kind of like hysteria over different drugs and what what that might do to people yeah. and um, kind of like whole sections of society. But again, given a certain amount of historical perspective, those worries are often far more to do with emergent trends in society and like worries about different people thinking about the kind of like panic over marijuana and LSD in the 60s and then what happens with cocaine and crack in sort of African-American communities in the 80s and 90s that actually it's often not about the drugs it's about what's the shape shape of society and what's what's happening and i i sort of for me it feels like what's happening here i think Toasted cheese. Look at the time. Uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think um, it might be worth trying to wrap up quite soon. Yeah. How many shirts does Lud in the Mist get? I think I might give it a six. Are we allowed half shirts? No, this is getting silly. Um, <laughs> six. I'm giving six. Six shirts because I did. I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. But there was, as we as we said at the very beginning, kind of the texture. And the kind of allegorical implications were were like a a nine shirts, but maybe the plot pulled it down a little bit for me. But I did, yeah, I did, I did enjoy it hugely. What uh, what about you? How many how many shirts are you going to give this one? I think that's exactly how I feel. If I could take out the middle of this book where it becomes extremely plot heavy, I would be left with a, a what for me would be a kind of masterpiece. You know, it's so beautifully constructed in terms of the world that's built. I think absolutely beautiful. And and uh, writing style and so on. So I would give it, like you, something like nine shirts. But I think in its current state, I would have to bring it down to yeah six or seven shirts. So I think we're agreed. Yeah, definitely worth reading because you enter a, a very strange world that's unlike anything else that you've read, and and unlike any secondary world fantasy that that I've read, it's nothing like The Hobbit or mm. you know anything that is inspired by that. In fact, this is this is pre-Tolkien, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I would definitely say as as someone that doesn't read a lot of fantasy, I'm sure, you know, it's it's got a huge following amongst aficionados of, of the genre. But I also think if you're someone that's not into fantasy, you're going to really enjoy this too. Because yeah, it's very funny and it doesn't take itself too seriously. And it seems to poke fun at the genre before the genre even exists. Yeah. Which is something that's really worth noting. You know, our discussion of it has been very serious, but the book is lighthearted definitely yeah we need to do a better job of getting that across sometimes i think rob with that <laughs> we, we're slightly po-faced ourselves at times. Yeah, we can edit in some jokes yeah, right? yeah. It's fine. <laughs> 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. But so, yes, after Harrison's death, Merlis converts to Catholicism. Sorry, I'm going to say that again because I say Catholicism weird. <laughs> after Harrison's death, Merlis converts to Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on, I'll let you say Okay, third, third time lucky. Um, yeah. Catholicism, 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 Catholicism. Catholicism.